Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the PR Week, your weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Frank Washcook. I'm your guest host for this week and PR Week's executive editor, and I have a terrific guest co-host and PR Week reporter, Alita Stam. Alita, how are you doing this week? Doing pretty good. It's good to be here. Good. Glad to have you on board. Uh, And we have a terrific and, uh, and a very timely guest, if I could say so, and that's Josh Garrett, the CEO of Redwood Climate Communications. Josh, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. I think our readers probably know a little bit about your firm. Strange Brew Strategies launched a few uh, a few months ago, but but give us a little bit behind the scenes. Tell us more about it and and the kind of work that you are focusing on at the firm. Sure, yeah. So as the as the name sort of uh, gives away, uh, Redwood was created specifically to serve uh, clients in the climate tech space um, and. There's actually a lot of different definitions based on climate tech, uh, based on your perspective on climate tech. So I'll just give mine. And that is uh, pretty broad, which means any technology, any any activity, any service, any product that uh, whose primary function is to either mitigate the uh, climate crisis and its impacts or help uh, us as a civilization adapt to its impacts, which uh, many of which are now unfortunately irreversible and uh, just, you know, new, new realities we have to live with. Um, so, so that was sort of the impetus behind it, and, and it was great to collaborate with Strange Reef Strategies to get uh, Redwood off the ground. Um, and yeah, in terms of you know what we specifically do for our clients, um, I kind of think of it as, as a, a more of an old school uh, PR and strategic communications firm. In that, we're really here to give strategic advice to our clients and help them figure out, hey, we've got a lot to say, we don't know how to say it or when to say it or or who you know when. Uh, and which of our partners to bring in, which audiences to target when. So, um, you know, one of my favorite parts of my work is when I'm able to sit down with a founder or a CEO or an executive team and sort of look at the broad spectrum of their business goals and then give them very specific advice on how to use public relations or other uh, communications activities to advance toward those goals. Um, And, um, you know, often I get to, uh, go along for the ride and help them execute them, um, largely by providing uh, media relations services, uh, but also uh, writing, you know, thought leadership type stuff, taking the sort of concepts and ideas and strong opinions that a company uh, might be uh, operating on or, or that its leadership might hold and uh, getting them out there in the uh, marketplace of ideas and uh, hopefully uh, getting some attention and, and uh, helping those businesses or organizations grow and, and succeed along the way. So it sounds like sort of an old school approach to solving new school and future uh, problems, if you will. And it, it sounds like really, really interesting work. Um, h- how do you find the clients are receptive uh, to be, be just because it's such a broad, you know, truly like humanity facing problem? Uh, that you're trying to solve and and how receptive are they, you know, knowing it's going to take a lot more effort than just they can do? Yeah, I think most of the, the clients that I work with, they understand that they are one of, you know, thousands, if not millions of, of people really working on the problem of climate change and, and the climate crisis uh, impacts that have become so ubiquitous um, in our lifetimes now. Um, they understand that they're just, you know, 
a one sort of player in that cast and they're happy to play that role. But what they do want to do, of course, is stand out and um, tell the world, tell their target audience, whether it's consumers or investors or uh, maybe large corporations that, you know, would want to you know, buy their product or, or, or employ their services. Um, and, you know, make, make clear to those audiences that they have, you know, usually an innovative approach to solving one piece of the climate problem. Um, and uh, sometimes it's just, you know, doing something that's already been done, but doing it in a better way that's more efficient, more effective, or, or perhaps cheaper. But I think essentially, you know, there's, there's an understanding, and this is what, one of the reasons I really like working in this industry, there's an understanding that the solution to the climate crisis is it's a puzzle and, and every technology and company behind it is a small piece of that puzzle. So there isn't a lot of like dog eat dog sort of cutthroat, you know, business <laughs> um, it's trying to stomp on your competitor type, uh, you know, communications activities uh, that are going on. And there isn't a lot of interest in that. It's more about telling the broad story and then fitting each individual organization and what it does um, into that narrative that gets us from where we are now of, oh, wow, this is scary. Uh, the climate crisis has now really hit us and what are we gonna do? To, okay, we've employed all of these different solutions in concert and uh, we're now in a better place. And hopefully that uh, next uh, next act in the narrative is is not too, uh, not too many years away from now. That's good to hear that it's not too much of a dog eat dog world. Um, what kind of clients are you working with? Uh, you know, I'm trying to get a, a picture in my mind of the folks that you're talking to every day. Sure. So um, just uh, the most recent example uh, actually is a uh, company called Carbon Capture. That's one word. And uh, what they do is capture carbon directly from the atmosphere. It's a technology called direct air capture. Um, and as of today, they've announced uh, they closed their Series A fundraise. And they're also announcing a really interesting partnership with uh, Rio Tinto, which is the world's second largest mining company, to take that carbon and um, through their proprietary process, inject it into rocks that might be either in a Rio Tinto mine or uh, have been pulled out of the mine uh, to make way uh, for to extract other valuable metals. Um, and and so that uh, that's pretty sort of typical. It's a really uh, ambitious technology. It's relatively new. The direct air capture or DAC sector has only been around for about 10 years and carbon capture has uh, sort of a new approach to it. And this partnership with the mining company has is, is, is not been done before. So um, I bring them up because their announcement happened today, but also because uh, they're, they're just doing something new and bold. And I think if you said to someone 20 years ago, hey, we can help solve the climate crisis by putting giant fans out in the middle of nowhere and sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and then injecting it in rocks where it'll never get out again, they would say, that's crazy, get out of here. Um, but, you know, we're seeing massive investment um, in uh, the uh, DAC sector uh, just over the last two, three years. Um, and I think that's representative of uh, climate tech in general. There's so many uh, smaller sectors like direct air capture that once seemed crazy and unachievable, and now the technology has come a long way and is not only promising in its ability to address the climate crisis, um, but also, you know, offers a pretty significant uh, opportunity uh, for a big return on investment, uh, especially over, you know, a decade or so uh, timescale. Um, so just uh, expanding out from carbon capture, um, I'm in touch with a lot of uh, players in the electric vehicle space. So a lot of work to be done there. Of course, you have your Teslas and your, um, you know, other uh, auto manufacturers that are cranking out some really 
interesting and cool and fun to drive uh, EVs, but there's a whole other infrastructure piece that needs to get into place um, to get those uh, electric vehicles out of the single digit percentage, at least in the US, of the number of cars on the road. We gotta put chargers uh, where people you know, can access them. We gotta make those chargers work and, and make them work quickly. So make that experience of charging your EV just as quick and easy as filling your gas tank, which is of course what everyone's used to. So um, in touch with a lot of companies in that space, um, some of which um, are actually focused on a particular sector of the vehicle market. So commercial fleets offer a huge opportunity uh, for decarbonizing uh, vehicles. Um, Amazon made big waves when they put it in order for 100,000 electric vehicles with a, a small a startup Rivian. Um, and just to sort of put that in perspective, uh, Rivian has yet to actually release their vehicles. So they're making them, they're, they're in prototypes out there, but they haven't really delivered them on mass yet. And yet one of the biggest companies in the world and Amazon already put an order for um, 100,000 vehicles. So I think that's indicative of sort of the appetite among um, large corporates to get into the climate tech space one way or another and uh, use technology to decarbonize their operations. So um, transportation is another big sort of uh, broad subcategory under the climate tech umbrella. Um, and then also, you know, in the adaptation side, there's a lot of technologies out there that are um, in sectors like agriculture, where, you know, there are going to be a lot of changes coming to how you grow this or that crop or how you raise livestock as a result of climate change. And then, of course, you know, more conscientious, more companies becoming conscientious of the carbon impact of their agriculture activities and lots of technologies, you know, that can help them first measure and secondly, reduce their, their carbon emissions while also uh, preparing for sort of the new world that is uh, going to be made by climate change in terms of things that are very important to agriculture, like rainfall, uh, soil quality, average temperature, things like that. So just, that's just sort of a, a smattering, um, but really, you know, it's, it's awesome because there's some uh, companies that I would never have thought of the idea that they're doing and they come to me and make a very clear case for why it's important to the climate and then I'm able to work with them. And uh, one example for, uh, that comes to mind there is uh, synthetic coffee. So coffee that's instead of grown from coffee beans and, and made the traditional way, it's uh, made uh, using different extracts to mimic the flavor and the smell and, and all of that and uh, made into a drink. And that will significantly reduce the pretty uh, resource intensive process of, of uh, raising coffee. Um, so um, that's just, a, I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop there. Um, but wanted to give you an idea of, of the just incredible diversity in this uh, sector. It's fascinating stuff. And the, and the technology is absolutely, it's, it's just so interesting. And you mentioned everything from mining to, to coffee, and I'm sure there's 10 other things you could mention on this. Um, one thing that's been in the news a lot is the, you know, what, what is the status of the infrastructure bill? uh that that the biden administration has been trying to to push through and i think a part of a part of their early agenda was definitely green technology um and and pushing more government spending in that direction it, the status of it changes every single day in terms of what could be in the bill what might not be in the bill but but how dependent is the green tech industry or uh, the companies you work with on on more government investment is it a huge deal or is it uh, are are they just going ahead and spending anyway at this point? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I get that pretty often. And and yeah, it's been quite the roller coaster ride on both of those infrastructure bills. Uh, I think the short answer is, uh, climate tech sector is going to be successful even with zero dollars and zero tax incentives. Um, what the government support will do, though 
is speeded up. And we're at the point now where the IPCC, which is of course the global authority on what's going on with the climate, they basically said we have until 2030 to start really cutting back emissions and you know doing it increasingly um, quickly beyond that in order to avoid really terrible catastrophic effects of climate change. So what government money can do is number one, you know, provide resources and support to the companies that are already um, making these very impressive and effective technologies and helping speed them to market and, and, and get their impact into uh, sort of the climate equation earlier. Um, and number two, you know, help support those smaller companies that need the loan guarantees or the R&D um, resources to take what's a really great promising idea that may not have a clear commercial application now um, and help them scale it up and, and get it to a place where they can, you know, find a pathway to the market. Um, and so I think that's that's what's really the key value of the government investment is is really speeding up the whole process so we can all um, you know worry a little bit less. Um, but in the absence of that, you know we saw 16 billion dollars in investment and in just the first half of 2021 uh, across 250 or so venture deals. Um, and so I think that's just a small indication of. They're, you know, the private sector sees value in these technologies and these companies, and they're going to keep investing in them and, and doing what they need to do to, to get them out into the world. And that's what makes me optimistic. Uh, but certainly, I would much prefer to have the added benefit of government support that will help speed them up um, and help, you know, get a more diverse mix of uh, climate solutions out there. So I was just thinking about that, and I, I don't want to be the fatalist here, um, and I don't want to sound like the pessimist here, but um, so much of the climate related news in the news cycle is is not just negative it's it's so you know apocalyptically negative um do you find that companies have a hard time breaking through because of that just because there there's such an amount of doom and gloom out there um it, it just in terms of of where the climate crisis is heading um do, do you think they have a tough time breaking through in the media or does that actually help them break through into media stories yeah, I think on balance, it, it is positive. Um, and certainly, you know, there is a lot of doom and gloom out there and, and no shortage of apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery, whether it's, you know, wildfire smoke or, or you know, uh, devastating floods. But um, I think there's an appetite, frankly, from journalists as well as the broader public to see, okay, wow, this is scary. What what do you got for me, um, climate tech? Like, tell me that this we can fix this. So I think that tends to help. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to getting the story out there and, and following up those those uh, reports of, you know, really devastating natural disasters that are linked to climate change with. But there's also some hope on the horizon in the form of these technologies that can really address this problem pretty directly. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to the PR professionals role. Our job is to make that connection and say to people, well, we're, you know, this solar panel isn't going to prevent you from having a drought or a blackout from a hurricane. But if we get enough of these solar panels out there, yeah, you're going to have fewer blackouts and um, maybe even the next hurricane won't be quite as bad. Um, and that's when I think we can really uh, when we do it right, we can really uh, get stuck in people's heads and, and uh, really show that. Um, the attention, the investment, the government support is all worth it. And I'll add also, and this is something that I really strive to do, so many climate solutions have additional benefits as well. So if we're, so for example, something that's uh, under a lot of discussion right now is offshore wind development in the US. That's a huge job creator. 
Um, there's a lot of skills that are transferable from other industries that are maritime industries, whether it's commercial fishing or even offshore oil development. Um, and you know, with not too much extra lift, we could not only build build out a gigantic renewable zero carbon energy uh, resource on the coasts of this country, but also you know bring in a whole lot of new jobs and and uh, get people um, into under more stable footing in terms of their career path. So just one example of the many ancillary benefits that come with a lot of climate solutions. One last thing I want to ask you about is uh, COP26 is coming up. Um, that's the the UN's uh, big climate change conference uh, starting on Halloween and running through November 12th. What what are your expectations and, and what are you looking out for when, once this conference starts? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely going to be interesting. And um, the thing that I will be looking for most of all is there's been a lot of back and forth about who's responsible for what and how high the target should be. Um, uh, Climate Week NYC this year, that was last month, the theme was moving from talk to action. And I think that theme sh- should definitely be extended to COP. And I think that there, there are signals among global leadership that that's what's going to happen. So instead of saying, here's our target, there's going to be discussion of very specific detailed plans on the part of each country of exactly how they're going to reach their target. So for the U.S., uh, hopefully that will include um, at least elements of these two infrastructure bills uh, whose fates are uh, as yet undetermined. Um, but even in the absence of that, I think the Biden administration and, and a lot of um, parties in Congress you know, have pretty good plans for uh, addressing the climate crisis and, and its causes uh, in the U.S. Uh, in a pretty effective way. So I think that will uh, show through regardless of what's going on in terms of legislation. Uh, and I expect to see, you know, similar things from other countries around the world that are ready to make a big splash and say, all right, we're ready to walk uh, the talk that we've been talking for the last decade or two on here is a very specific plan. So uh, I'm uh, expecting that and, and hoping for it, um, mostly because, uh, you know, there, there's really not a lot of other uh, choices for us to make at this point. Okay, I want to kick things over to Alita to very uh, quickly go through the biggest marketing and communications news of the week. We have a really sad story to uh, to talk about first, and that's the passing of the industry icon uh, David Finn, which just happened on uh, on Tuesday morning. Um, you know, sort of the the father of three different agencies in one way. Fascinating career. Uh, Alita, tell us a little bit more about him. Yeah, we did just find out uh, Tuesday morning that he had passed away on Monday. Um, he was co-founder of Ruder Finn and the celebrated artist, and he had just celebrated his 100th birthday in August. Um, we did a pretty expansive spread on him. Um, it was so interesting to learn about everything he's contributed to the industry. Um, he founded Ruder Finn in 1948 with Bill Ruder in a linen closet at the Lombardi Hotel. So talk about starting from the bottom. And he spent almost seven, 70 years uh, changing the public relations industry. He's worked on uh, with several presidential administrations, uh, including the Kennedy administration. Uh, he served on the National Endowment for the Humanities under the Clinton administration. And he helped build and launch Ready.gov with the Bush administration after 9-11. Uh, he was widely published in almost 100 books. Uh, exhibited, he was an exhibited artist, writer, photographer, um, and he left behind quite a legacy. His daughter, Kathy Bloomgarden, uh, took over as CEO of Ruderfin in 1999. 
Um, his other daughter, Amy Binder, split away from Ruder Finn in 2001 to set up RF Binder. And his son, Peter Finn, and daughter, Dina Merriam, co-founded their own agency, Finn Partners, in 2011. So legacy in work, but also, you know, family still in the industry. Yeah, quite the quite the long legacy, for sure. Um, I did not know that he, uh, he worked on the nuclear test ban treaty under the Kennedy administration, which is uh, which is such a historic thing. Um, and just, you know, I, I think all of the everybody who works at any of the uh, the agencies that that uh, he's associated with uh, could just have so much to be proud of in terms of how much he accomplished throughout his life. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know just uh, what a celebrated photographer he was as well. So, uh, you know, our, th- our thoughts are with his family, uh, with, with all of his, his colleagues and former colleagues and, uh, you know, just some really sad news to pass on this week. OK, Alita, next up, tell us about Medtronic bringing on Amy Jo Meyer. Uh, yeah, so Medtronic, they promoted um, Amy Jo Meyer to VP of Corporate Communications this month. Um, she's heading up corporate re- reputation, thought leadership, and internal communications for the medical device company. Uh, she had joined them in 2017 as a senior director and was very quickly promoted to VP of Global Communications and Corporate Marketing for the Americas. And she's got uh, quite some experience in healthcare communications with previous roles at Johnson & Johnson and at St. June Medical. All right. Uh, Medtronic, really fascinating company, uh, medical device maker. Uh, I think a company a lot of people have had their eyes on over the past few years. Uh, Tell us a little bit about a new policy at Edelman that is making vaccination a condition of employment. Yeah, um, Edelman is officially mandating vaccination against uh, COVID-19 for its employees. They're citing the uh, Joe Biden's executive order requiring vaccination for companies with more than 100 employees and for federal contractors. So this is a U.S. mandate applies to all of DJE holding agencies, including Zeno, uh, Zeno Group, United Entertainment Group and the fast food focused specialist Edible. Um, other agencies have done similar. Omnicom um, took a similar stance with mandatory vaccinations, while other agencies have been a little more lenient with vaccination status um, in a public group had mandated proof of vaccination or regular testing um, and publicist group um, has pushed back their decision until Q4. So we should be hearing more uh, soon on their decision about uh, getting back to the office and what that could mean for vaccination status for their employees. That's right. And we'll be following up soon on what other agencies are doing, especially those who are government contractors uh, and uh, do at least on its face uh, look like they are required to mandate this as well. But uh, but good for the exec team at Edelman. Uh, you know, I think that shows real leadership in putting this decision forward. So good on them on that one. Starbucks has brought on AJ Jones. Alita, tell us more. Yeah, more exciting people moves. Um, he was appointed to the newly created role of SVP of Global Communications and Public Affairs. He's got quite a laundry list of new responsibilities, uh, including being in charge of uh, global comms, international comms, partner comms, corporate, you know, Starbucks stories, um, other mar- marketing integration and entertainment teams worldwide. And some of Starbucks communications function is being restructured around uh, AJ, adding five roles reporting to him, including a VP of global communications and a VP of international communications. He's uh, got previous experience in a mix of in-house and agency. He's held roles at uh, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, BCW. 
um, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Gilead Sciences. So we look forward to see um, what he does at Starbucks in the future. Yeah. And um, Starbucks also has just that great alumni um, sort of tree, if you will, uh, of, of executives all through the industry. You know, thinking about Corey DeBrower over at Google um, and um, and plenty of others as well. So, uh, you know, really interesting company to work in communications for. Interesting to see what AJ brings to the role. Um, okay, well, that's about all the time we have for today. One thing uh, to just remind everybody about, if you are still interested in getting tickets for our 40 Under 40 event, you can still do that. But that's all the time we have. So, Garrett, thanks so much for joining us and talking about all the important work uh, that you're doing at Redwood. Uh, Alita, thank you for uh, co-hosting, and we will see you all next week on the next edition of the PR Week. Thanks for listening. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.